This week on A Lively Experiment, out with the old and in with the new as Dan McKee moves up one flight at the State House. And Rhode Island may be bailed out with a windfall of federal money, but how should we spend it? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Mark Smiley, former chairman of the Rhode Island Republican Party, former United States Congressman Bob Wagan, and Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. Well, Rhode Island has a new leader. On Tuesday, Dan McKee was sworn in as the 76th governor of the state shortly after Gina Raimondo was confirmed by the U.S. Senate as Commerce Secretary. McKee has said that COVID is going to be job number one for the foreseeable future, but he has a variety of other things on his plate. We'll get to that in just a minute, but Lisa, let me start with you. There's been a lot of talk about Gina Raimondo and her six years as governor and potentially how we're going to look back on that tenure. Well, you know, if we had to grade her right now, I would give her an incomplete because uh, she ran for re-election. And when you run for re-election, it means that you have certain things that you want to finish. And she's now halfway through her second term. So when you look back to where she started when she became governor and where we are today, is the state better off? And we can say, no, it's not. And partly it's not her fault because of COVID and what we've been going through with the pandemic. But she's in, we're in the midst of the pandemic and she's leaving. And it looks like it hasn't been the smoothest handoff from Governor Raimondo to incoming Governor McKee. So I think we do need a little bit more time to really step back and look at her legacy because there are many things that she started that haven't been completed. So we don't know if they're going well or not and leaving the state in a better place. Bob, there's always been a bit of a disconnect between what the national press has written about Gina Raimondo. And I think this is natural. The prophet is never appreciated in his own hometown, as we read in the Bible. And I wonder what your thought is. I mean, she's if you read The New York Times and The Wall Street Journal, she's God's gift to government. There have been some bumps here. But I wonder, you know, you've been able to kind of see both sides of that. What is your thought as she goes out the door? Well, I think, first of all, uh, that there's going to be a great legacy that she's going to leave. Uh, she really did do a very good job on COVID. Well, yes, it's uh, not completed, and Dan McKee is going to complete it and finish that off. Uh, she's known as a leader, uh, not only uh, outside of the state, but inside the state, with regard to her leadership on COVID. Now, she, the very beginning, took firm control of the situation. She really did do a great job. Many people said she was overwhelming the General Assembly, but someone needed to lead, and she did that. Um, if we look back at uh, governors of past, it's often been a crisis in their administration in which they were judged by as part of their legacy. The crisis was COVID, and uh, quite frankly, she did a great job. Uh, I wish uh, she was still staying around to complete it, but I have firm faith in Dan McKee that he'll finish it off. It is our number one priority. It has really uh, affected everybody from children to businesses uh, to all walks of life. And um, I'm proud of what she did, uh, but I I think that it was uh, timing that pulled her away. Uh, It's unfortunate that she can't finish it up, but I think her legacy will be her response to COVID. 
Mark, let's talk about the last six years. You, you have, uh, where do we begin, right? Where do we begin? Yes. Um, I have to disagree um, with the COVID-19 response. Rhode Island is actually the worst state in the country right now. Um, it, if infection rate and death rate are the, are the benchmark, we're the worst. Um, we're the only state that is in the top 10 of both categories in the country. Uh, at one point, we were the worst in the world. Um, it, I just cannot believe that this is the best that we could have done. Uh, another problem that I have with her is after a year of COVID, there really wasn't a vaccination plan at all. It just suddenly the vaccine started showing up and somebody was supposed to do something about that. Um, so we got off to a very rocky start to get started with. I'd like to remind uh, the viewers of a few things. Uh, there's always cooler and warmer. Uh, there's the mask maskless Black Lives Matters protest. The UHIP debacle that we've spoken about on this for years on this show. Um, the crisis at DCYF. Um, our economy is really not in a whole lot better shape than the day she took over. Um, and that's that's just the the, the low lights. Uh, this 66 pages of PR, um, that that type of PR campaign is why her national um, view, uh, people in on the national view, think she's a wonderful thing with for for government. It's just it's it's all fantasy stuff. So I'm sorry, but no, I, I can't I can't say that she's done a great job or that her legacy will be long term great. Uh, I hope that we get for real about her legacy because I think her plan is to come back here and take over Jack Reed's seat when he's ready to step down. Uh, and we can't have that either. So, Bob, what about that? Let's put COVID aside and let's look at, you know, uh, President Trump tried to do that too. Everything was great until COVID and then everything kind of fell apart. Let's look at those five years before COVID hit and some of the things that, that Mark talked about, you hit the cooler and warmer, some of the economic figures and all of that. What would your response be to that? There was a lot of mistakes. Uh, there's a lot of mistakes in every administration. Um, there are many uh, missteps uh, and I... Uh, complained about her uh, missteps many times. I think the cool and warmer was the biggest debacle, um, but I do believe that she handled uh, the economic situation that she inherited when she came in uh, in a very good way. Uh, I've always had a, I've always been disappointed with the way she handled the uh, pension plan when she was general treasurer, uh, even that's before her time as governor. Uh, I, 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 I thought it was, uh, heavy-handed, and there could have been a better way of doing it. And there isn't any one administration, Democrat or Republican, that doesn't have those kinds of missteps. And Mark is right in, in many ways. There are things that didn't go perfectly smoothly. Um, but I think that uh, she was uh, a, a wonderful leader for the state of Rhode Island at a very difficult time. I don't always agree with some of the things that she did, uh, but she did lead. Uh, we take a look back at some of our former governors. Going back to Joe Garrity. What do people remember? They don't remember what he did to improve higher education. They don't remember what he did with regard to the economy. They remember what he did with regard to the blizzard of 78. Uh, if you take a look at Edward Preet, they remember that he went to jail because of uh, bribery uh, 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 conviction. If you take a look at uh, Don Kachiri, they'll remember him for both the uh, very great way he and his wife, Sue, responded to the nightclub fire. They also uh, criticized him because of uh, 
uh, the handling of uh, uh, 38 Studios. That handling was terrible. Uh, but I think that while she will have a number of uh, little things that Mark talked about, which is true, I think the biggest thing will be her forceful and uh, skillful way that she handled COVID-19. Lisa? But it's unfinished. That's the problem. You know, you're she right. started you're it right. and it's unfinished. And we don't know. One of the ways we're going to have to grade her is how well did she prepare Lieutenant Governor McKee to take over as governor? We knew that she was very much interested in going to Washington, the last presidential election that didn't work out. So we knew that she wanted to go. So we need to think about that. Also, I've been trying to think, you know, this week, what's her lasting legacy in the terms of economy? What has she done really that will make a difference going forward? We, she started the wind power and then that hasn't gone you know, forward. There's been many economic development programs put in place to help workers, but I'm not really seeing a change in overall our economy and in terms of attracting businesses. And we know that she didn't have a strong focus on small business, which our Lieutenant Governor, now Governor McKee has had and will continue to have strong uh, small businesses, really the backbone of our state. So in terms of the economy, I'm not seeing where she's moving it forward. We have unfinished business and education. We have the state takeover of the schools of Providence. And right now in the midst of a negotiation with the union contract that again, the new governor now has to um, take on. So there's just a lot of unfinished business. So I really think we need a few more years to come back and say, here's the legacy of Gina Raimondo. Well, I think you're right in many, in many ways. There are many uh, administrations. People try to judge them right away as soon as the person has left office. It'll not happen that way. It's going to be three, five, eight, ten years down the road before people really have a firm understanding of what her legacy is. Um, I think that uh, while it may seem sexist, she's the first woman governor. I think that's a wonderful accomplishment that uh, she can claim. Now, it doesn't improve the economy, doesn't improve education, doesn't improve health care. But I think that's a wonderful first step in, in a recognition that she should be known for. But I do believe that she, well, I, as I said many times, I disagree with the way she handled some things. She was a forceful leader and she moved things forward. Mark, I'll give you the final word on Gina Raimondo before we go to Dan McKee, if you want to respond to that. Well, um, on all of those subjects that I mentioned earlier, plus uh, her handling of COVID-19, the, the group in this state that I am least pleased with over their response is the General Assembly. Um, both House and Senate have oversight committees for a reason. Uh, somebody needed to be asking the hard questions, and we all saw what she did when they started getting hard questions. She just stopped taking questions. Uh, that's what the press can happen to the press, but she can't do that to the oversight committee at the House or the Senate. Um, questions like, uh, what exactly is the science behind closing a bar at 11 p.m.? Uh, it can be open. You can sit in a bar from noon to 11 p.m. That's not a problem. There's no safety issue there, but something happens at 11. What is the science that happens there? Um, somebody needed to be asking those kinds of questions. Another one is uh, a church could have up to 50% of its capacity until that actually goes over 125. Once it gets to 125, you have to shut it down. So a church that has a thousand um, capacity, a thousand person capacity uh, is limited to 12 and a half percent. What's the science in that? And maybe there actually is. We have no idea because our General Assembly has hidden their basements uh, and not asked these hard questions. Then that's what their job was supposed to be. So uh, I don't know uh, exactly 
how we could have done better in COVID-19. I do know that with COVID-19, there are other states across the country that have done much better with looser restrictions um, and not shutting down their businesses, yet we're in the worst position that we could possibly be in, having the highest death rate, having the, the, the highest infection rate, plus we have decimated our economy by shutting these small businesses down. And was that ever even necessary? We don't know. We won't well, so, And we may not know. I think we could all agree about the General Assembly because we've talked about that often. Now we move to Dan McKee, and he's finally got his hands on the wheel. Uh, Bob, let me start with you as a former lieutenant governor. You never moved up that step, but you know the dynamic. You asked the, we asked the question before, Lisa did, did Gina Raimondo really prepare him? They've had the iciest of relationships, I think. And you worked with two governors. I wonder what your thought is now as Dan McKee goes in, what you would like to see him do. Well, first of all, I think it was very disappointing with the way that uh, Gina Raimondo handled the transfer between her administration to uh, Dan, Dan's administration. Uh, it could have been done much better. Um, it, it, it seemed very adversarial at times and very disappointing. And so I, I do criticize her for the way she handled that. Uh, Gina Raimondo's administration was primarily a top-down kind of administration where she would uh, initiate a policy or a program and she would put it out there and she would uh, push it. Dan McKee is going to be much different. He's going to be more, uh, and you've seen it just in the last 48 hours, more decentralized. He's going to bring his issues to the communities. Having been a former mayor, he wants to do that. He's brought in Joe Policina, Charlie Lombardi, and many other mayors uh, to be part of his uh, transition. Um, he will uh, go out there and try to collaborate with communities, community leaders, uh, and try to build a coalition of support for his, uh, uh, his um, uh, policies and his programs. And I think that's a good thing. But I also caution him that that's a very difficult thing to do. Because when you're listening to 39 cities and towns and all those voices coming in, uh, after a while, uh, you're going to disappoint some of them because they're not going to you're not going to follow everything those uh, cities and towns want. But it's, it's a diversified, uh, decentralized kind of administration versus the Raimondo administration. Uh, I think I give him a lot of praise for what he's done. He's gone out there. He's trying to work with people. Uh, I caution him that he, at some point in time, is going to have to say, this is what we're going to do, and we have to move forward with it. And that will be when uh, the proof of how strong a leader General McKee uh, is and uh, how the people will respond to him. Lisa? He's got such a full plate ahead of him. You know, um, I've been thinking a lot during this transition about what happened with Harry Truman and um, President um, Franklin Roosevelt, that um, the president brought Truman in, but kind of kept him aside. And then a few months later, you know, the president died. And then Truman finds out, oh, by the way, we have, a, you know, an atomic bomb. And he, he wasn't even aware of this, you know. So I feel like, you know, the governor, Raimondo, had put, you know, Dan McKee aside. And now he's governor and he's taken on such enormous issues of COVID, the economy, and preparing a budget, which right now, unless he's able to move the date, he's going to have to present to the General Assembly next week. So he's been barely governor and he has to be responsible for a budget that I think now is approaching at least $13 billion, you know, to understand all the nuances of that budget. So he has so much that he has to focus on, uh, but he, ha he just has to keep his eye on if he can get the vaccine in people's arms, 
we can open up our economy, we can get people back to work, and then that's the most important thing that he should be doing right now. That's a good segue into uh, what I wanted to talk about, uh, the budget. Now, it looks like with this federal stimulus that's still being discussed in the Senate, but I think it's going to go through with the Democratic majority about this tranche of money that's going to go to help prop up state uh, and, and to a lesser extent local cities and towns. Rhode Island is in line for potentially one and a half billion dollars more. And so you remember last week I sat down with RIPEC, uh, the executive director, Mike DBAs. I uh, got a, an extra uh, bonus interview with him. I asked him, what about this money? I mean, for the short run, it's great. But what would you like to see done? Here's a little bit of what DBAs told me last week. The federal government has paid all of the COVID expenses, as far as I can tell, for both the state and the cities and towns. So we have this revenue issue. We're spending roughly $500 million more than we take in as a, on a structural basis. Now, that's not been a problem because we've had federal money to backfill us, and we probably won't have a problem this budget year, but it's one-time funds that we're getting from the federal government. They're not going to keep giving it to us. So if you use the federal money to increase your spending on a recurring basis, then you created a bigger structural problem. And that there's eventually going to be a reckoning. So I think the first thing is we have to be restrained in our recurring spending. The other is what do you do with this one-time money? And what can we do that's strategic in terms of perhaps changing the trajectory of our economy or improving the lives of Rhode Islanders? So things like broadband or education and training or Maybe it's investments in tourism attractions that would make us more of a tourist destination. Maybe it's investments in our long-term care infrastructure, IT investments in government. Can we make government more efficient? Obviously, there's a lot of needs. We have to take care of people. We don't want to cut services for people who depend on it. But it would be unfortunate if, we, if it just goes into the, into the regular spending. I do think taking that money and being more strategic with it is really important. Rhode Island, of course, has had a history of uh, using one-time fixes. The tobacco money comes to mind years ago. Mark, let me start with you on this. If you, if you were uh, governor and this was your decision or, or Speaker of the House, what would you do with this, this huge windfall of money? Um, well, I'd need to prop up my small business community. Uh, we didn't do that with the first round of stimulus. Uh, or didn't do it well. Um, and most of the jobs in this state are with small businesses. And, um, and they have really taken it on the chin during the COVID-19 crisis. And we need to get them help as fast as we possibly can. Uh, shoring up a budget that's completely out of control, uh, it, we just need to stop with the spending. We don't have a, a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. We've heard that over and over again. And nobody seems to care. We just continue to spend more and more. Um, so we need to get this money out to the people that are hurting the most with COVID-19 and find where we can cut our budget to bring it back into line. Bob, the numbers kind of confused me because, you know, we were at 10.4 billion two years ago. Now, of course, it went way up because of the federal money. I want to see whether it's going to settle back. So, so the, the, um, the budget that McKee presents next week or in the next couple of weeks, so does that settle back into that $11 billion range? Because it's unsustainable. We can't have a $13 billion budget. Wasn't that kind of an outlier anomaly with the federal money from last year? We, we thought so. Um, it is a very confusing the way it's uh, been handled. 
$12.7 billion is uh, the number. Um, it's increased tremendously. Um, Mark is very correct in that we have to be careful where we're spending this money. We can't be putting it in as a, um, a filler without anticipating future uh, revenue uh, coming in. So you need to invest it into small businesses. You need to invest it into jobs that will grow. You need to invest it into uh, the parts of the economy that will generate more tax revenue. Otherwise, uh, next year, we will have to cut various programs or raise taxes enormously, which we don't want to do. Um, so it really has to be smartly invested. Um, I sat on the budget committee when I was a, a member of the House of Representatives in Congress, and it was always a big fight. Uh, Congress has the ability to deficit spend. Uh, they can put money out there and uh, be in debt. State of Rhode Island can't do that. The state of Rhode Island has to balance its budget. And if they're using the federal money just to fill the gap this year, it's going to be a bigger gap next year. Uh, so both uh, Mike and Mark are correct in that. Lisa? Yeah, but let me just say something out of the box, and maybe it's outrageous to people, but what about using this money for some of the bond issues? So instead of going out to bond, uh, you know, on the transportation, the state match that the state has to provide to get the federal funds. What about if we just take it out of the money that's coming in from Washington right now, so we don't have to pay 20 years of interest on a bond for transportation or 20 years of interest on a bond for Trinity Rep or any of the other arts um, programs that got approved this week with the bond issues. And what I would really like to see is a budget that would put aside that um, actually be clear and transparent to say, here's our budget and here's the additional federal money that we're spending because we're getting it for pandemic relief. And let's see the separation of that money so we can better understand of what's going where. Well, we have to, first of all, we have to be sure that the federal guidelines for this money that's coming in allows for that, allows for it to be used to match federal money. Um, but we all remember that uh, the governor doesn't have to spend all the $400 million that was approved. You can hold back. You don't necessarily have to spend that money. And you could look at it as a way of kind of uh, curtailing the uh, great appetite we have for spending uh, by not using some of that um, bond money that was approved by the voters. So if uh, we only use $280 million rather than the $400 million, uh, that would reduce our deficit um, uh, reduce our requirement to, uh, with regard to the interest we have to pay on those bonds. Uh, there's ways of handling this, uh, but I think we're all saying the same thing. This is a one-time only, and we can't be using just to fill this gap because next year is going to be a bigger gap. Yeah, one thing that struck me, Mark, was what Mike DBA said, a structural deficit of approximately $500 million. These were relatively good times. They were talking about $250 million before COVID. Now, I realize the economy, I think the economy is going to roar back. But think of that, that we have a structural deficit and we're, we're in pretty good economic times, or at least we were a year ago. And the, the House um, Republicans have been screaming the same thing for, for a couple of years now is, is if we're running these structural deficits in the good times, what is going to happen in the bad times? And uh, and we're seeing it. Here we come. Um, you know, revenue is down. Uh, it will continue to stay tepid at best uh, for quite a few more months. And um, and we just continue to increase our budget anyway. Um, so uh, 
we've got to do better than this. Uh, we need to start listening to the other side of the aisle screaming bloody murder that we can't be doing this in, in the good times. If we're having a structural deficit, then what happens in the bad times? Well, here we come. Here we are. That's All right. Now okay. We, uh, we only have about three or four minutes left. Let's do outrages and or kudos. Lisa, let's begin with you. Um, about three years ago, we started hearing of a movement called the Me Too movement. And they, these were women uh, really starting to uh, speak out about um, bad behavior that they had witnessed and been victims to. And here we are three plus years later, you would think that men in power would really be cognizant of the behavior that they have um, with their um, female workers, especially women who are subordinate to them. Yet here we go again, this time with the governor of New York, with now three women coming forward with allegations of sexual harassment not only is his behavior inappropriate, then he comes forward with an apology that doesn't take uh, his behavior into account. So I just, you know, I'm just outraged as a woman that here we are still experiencing this type of behavior. Yeah, and Cuomo was the darling. They were even talking about potentially putting him on the ticket. So boy, it's amazing how things change. And you know, Lisa, because all of a sudden, three, four, five more women come out that, you know, it's not a big conspiracy now that the... Uh, the dam has been open. Uh, that was a great one. Uh, uh, Bob, let's go to you. Outrage or kudo? Well, let me go back to the Capitol. As of this morning, uh, the Capitol Police and uh, the National Guard are gearing up for a potential uh, another assault on the Capitol. Um, I don't think it'll occur because there's been so much publicity about it, and it probably it was a good thing for the publicity. What's bothersome is that we have this uh, deep divide in this country. Uh, it is something that we need to deal with. We can no longer be fighting from far ends uh, with each other. We need to be coming together in a way that's realistic, that is uh, uh, helpful to all people, and not antagonizing the left and the right and making everything so terrible. Uh, Joe Biden is correct. We need to govern uh, for all America, not just the left or the right. And when I heard this uh, just the other day, I just said, we're, what is happening with this country? Our democracy is uh, in peril. Um, how can we pull things together, uh, make uh, things better for all people, not just for one sector? Uh, and it's, it's outrageous that this is still going on and we need to stop it. Uh, Mark, you get the final minute. The final minute. Uh, go back to the General Assembly. I had a conversation with a senator um, at from the State House who did not know that the Senate has an oversight committee. And uh, when I pointed out the name of the Rules, Ethics, and Oversight Committee, he had never heard it that way. And lo and behold, he's actually a member of it. Uh, <laughs> and didn't know that there was an oversight function within the Senate. And they're just simply relying on the House doing that, uh, which the Speaker keeps his thumb on, on the scale at all times uh, at the Oversight Committee. Um, the, we need to get back to just our government functioning the way it's supposed to function. Uh, that's, that's my outrage for the week. All right, Mark and Lisa and Bob, thank you. But this is not all. If you want to keep this conversation going, we're going to go to our online bonus segment, Lively Extra. You can go to ripbs.org slash lively right now. You'll get a bonus of an extra 10 minutes. We're going to talk a little national politics. For the rest of you, 
If you don't catch us on Friday nights or Sunday at noon, we're all over social media. Check out our Twitter page, Facebook, and if you don't catch our main episodes, go to ripbs.org. All of our lively episodes are housed there. Thank you so much for joining us. You never know what's going to happen between now and next week, but we will have it covered. Come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face rhode islanders i'm john hazen white jr and i'm proud to support this great program in rhode island pbs